Welcome to my Love Life Podcast, episode number 155, What is Your Evidence? It's December 6th, 2023. I'm your host, Lisa A. Lundy, author, blogger, YouTuber, motivational speaker, and more. (laughs) I am also a member of the Newsweek Expert Forum. What I do is I help people be happy, healthy, and well-loved, even when life is extremely difficult. As my disclaimer, this podcast does not constitute medical or therapy advice in any capacity. My music is by Howie Moscovich. What is your evidence? Oh my, this is a very interesting topic. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but I'll I'll let you think about that and we'll get to that. If you're new to my podcast or my content, I hope you will visit my website and do two things. One, enter my giveaway. The winners won't be picked and the prizes won't be shipped until sometime in 2024 when I'm settled, when I'm walking really well from my car accident and life is a little more settled. And the other thing you can do on my website is download my free emotional workbook guide. It's version 5.0 right below the Newsweek logo. It's free and it will really change your life. As my disclaimer, this podcast and nothing I say in any of my content in any format is designed to be medical or therapy advice. You as a human being should get your medical or therapy advice from a licensed healthcare provider of which I am not. Next up. If you know anyone who is in the deaf or hard of hearing community, or you yourself are in the deaf or hard of hearing community, I hope you will let the people in your community know that I have transcripts for all of my podcasts on rss.com, my podcast hosting platform. Later in 2024, I'll have transcripts on my website as well, but we've kind of put that, uh, set that aside for now. Uh, And the transcripts, by the way, are great for hearing people. That was actually how I got started on the transcripts in 2022 was a request of of a hearing person to be able to use the content in written form. All right. Last but not least, if you feel suicidal, if you're harming yourself or engaging in self-harm or you're you know, very depressed, or you just for whatever reason, feel like life is too hard for you to continue or you don't matter. I am asking you to call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or call or text 988. That number again is 1-800-273-8255 or call or text 988. There is plenty of help available for you. If you're feeling suicidal, please don't be ashamed or embarrassed. I know that probably one underpinning for you is trauma, undistinguished trauma and adverse childhood experiences. If you knew why you're feeling this way, you probably wouldn't feel that way. So get some help because it's available and have no shame. All right. What is your evidence? Well, first of all, what do I mean? <laughs> why would why would I do a podcast on this? Are you confused? Are you wondering? Well, so we're going to I'm going to start by using a little neuroplasticity, one of my favorite topics, neuroplasticity of the brain, meaning you as a listener doing some real thinking and see if you can figure out where I'm going with this. 
Now, this is, by the way, not going to a court of law, <laughs> so that's not the correct guess. All right, so we're going to start with the definition of evidence, which is a noun, and three definitions. So number one, a thing or set of things helpful in forming a conclusion or a judgment. Number two, something in, indica, 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 indicative or an indicator or set of indicators. And three, means by which an allegation may be proven. So those are the definitions. So to give you, so I don't know if you figured out where we're going, but here are several other ways to say the same thing or get to the same end point. Uh, why would you believe that? Why do you say that? Where did you hear that? Where did you get that information? What makes you think that or believe that? How did you arrive at that idea or how did you arrive at that conclusion? What supports that idea or notion? Can you provide additional information that doesn't sound right to me? Hmm, that seems off base to me. Can you give me some additional details? Uh, and lastly, that's contrary to what I heard, read, or thought. Can you tell me more? Where are you getting your information? So I think now you're getting the idea. You, as a human being, are looking to understand the basis for a statement, a position, an action, or something. You're looking for clarification or understanding. Now, throughout humanity, throughout going way back to the beginning of time, wise philosophers and other learned scholars have suggested in quotate many quotations and writings to seek understanding before you speak or to seek understanding before you render your opinion so that you don't look foolish so you can go right back and in the current century uh stephen covey now uh, yeah, God rest his soul, he was famous for saying, seek first to understand and then later to be understood. Oh, he didn't invent that idea. He didn't invent that phrase. He might have picked the exact words, but it's an age old idea going right back to the earliest philosophers and writers that it's wise people will do their due diligence and gather the facts and understand things before they speak. So, so this is an old idea that's still being circulated and we're going to dive in and kind of pull it apart. So why is this important? Well, number one, you know, I hope it, it shows concern. It shows interest. It can show compassion for another person's point of view, their judgment, their understanding or their position or their stance. So that that's always nice, isn't it? Number two, it can help sort out miscommunication and misunderstandings, also extremely valuable in human relationships, which is the next benefit of why it's important is number three, it helps to improve relationships or it can help to improve relationships. Number four, it can help you learn something new because sometimes you're going to hear something and it's brand new and you will actually learn something. Number five, it can interrupt a smear campaign. So we, I've done a podcast about smear campaigns. They are commonplace people, sadly. And asking this question in whatever form, I just gave you a whole bunch of forms, can reveal a smear campaign. It can also reveal triangulation if that's going on, which is another tactic of manipulation, another dirty, underhanded 
But common tactic, it can unearth or reveal betrayal, lies, and nefarious activities and deeds. It can reveal or point to the possibility of some, somebody being an emotional reasoner or irrational, a.k.a. having a cognitive distortion, which is helpful for you in so many ways. It can reveal a false narrative about you, other people, some other entity or situation. Number 10, it pulls the conversation in the direction of rational thinking and rational conversation as opposed to irrational, at least that's the intention. And number 11, it can reveal unreasonable, unfair, or unrealistic expectations and more. So those are 11 significant benefits for getting in and understanding what someone is saying, whether you, whether you phrase it in what is your evidence or why do you believe that or why do you say that? Where did you hear that? Where did you get that information? What makes you think that or believe that? How did you arrive at that idea? Any different way gets to the same point. So how do people react? Well, it's very interesting. <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll tell the truth of myself. I have been doing this uh, since I was very young. Uh, we've been picking myself apart and deconstructing my psyche in the last year, going on two years. And so we have determined that for however reason, whatever, however it happened, I was a rational thinker at a young age. And rational thinkers look to make sense of the wor world using facts, logic, reason. Like they, they, they're very logical and they use facts to reason. So a rational person wants to make sense of life and people in the world. And one of the ways to do that is to get information. So I've been doing this for a long time, a long time, people. And I can tell you there's a wide variety of reactions. Although I didn't realize until I'd say it's been in the last year to two years that we had such a high percentage of the population that is not rational. We have more people who are irrational. Don't have the statistic on that, and uh, and I can talk about why later. So how do people react? Well, it depends entirely on their personality, their temperament, the situation, the conversation. It can depend on their emotional skills and abilities. It can depend on a whole myriad of things. So there's a wide span of reactions, wide, wide, wide. Some people will get defensive, like, how dare you question me? The more righteous, opinionated, judgmental, know-it-all, arrogant, and the less open-minded they are, the more likely they are to be offended. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this idea of getting offended. And I just did a podcast titled Dealing with People Who Are Always Right. That podcast dives into the pe people and the personality type where people are righteous, opinionated, judgmental, know-it-all, arrogant. That's a very common personality profile, by the way. I hate to say it. Many people who have that are stealth about it. I have those traits. I do have those traits. It's just that my traits, I own them and they rarely show up because I've done work on myself. But the more righteous, opinionate, judgmental, know-it-all, arrogant, uh, the, per the more likely the person is to be offended. So that's one thing. But why would, why would you be offended for someone wanting to understand you? Like, let's look at this from a rational, logical point of view. 
why would me wanting to understand what you're saying, your point of view, your position, like the basis, why would that be offensive? That's that's a question. First of all, that's a question I've asked and no one, no one has ever had an answer for that. So that's one one reaction. So the, it's what this is is it's the drilling down to authenticate and verify the basis of their statements, position, action, or whatever. And and if it's somehow offensive or problematic, well, that needs to come to the front. Like, why are you upset? Because this is a very helpful tool, very helpful tool to help you in relationships with people. I know I. I had this conversation with someone some time ago, details omitted, and and they were saying something negative. And I said, oh, my heavens, I was really, I started to cry. I was really upset. And I said, why would you think that? And they said, blah, blah, blah. And I went, oh, no, the opposite is true. This is what was going on. And they were like, oh. And so it was an aha moment for both of us. They were thinking something completely off base. I had no idea they were thinking that until they made a statement. And then I asked for clarification, like, why would you say that? Or why were you thinking that? So it's very, very, can be very pivotal or critical in kind of unearthing miscommunications, misperceptions, all kinds of things. And and I'm going to give an example right now with emotional reasoners, because emotional reasoners, first of all, they're common. Emotional reasoning is a form of irrational thinking. It is also a, a cognitive distortion. And what emotional reasoners do is they use their emotions in place of facts. So they reason with their emotions. They kind of step over the facts. Facts are left by the curb and they reason literally with their emotions. So if you ask an emotional re- reasoner, what is your evidence or, or what are you basing your conclusion on or what are you basing that on? They can't substantiate their conclusion with facts only their emotions. So this is like how a conversation might go with them. So here's the emotional reasoner. I don't like this fame, that famous person. And you might say, Oh, really? Why don't you like that person? The emotional reasoner might say, well, they're a bad person. Oh, well, why do you say they're bad? Because like, first of all, you probably don't, if you're me, you you wouldn't know, (laughs) you wouldn't know. (laughs) Um, And they, and the emotional reasoner will say, well, because I don't like them. Okay. Well, you said they were a bad person. I'm asking why you're saying they're a bad person. Well, because I don't like them. And, and it would just go round and round in circles because they can't answer the question with facts. Now, if you were talking to a rational person with rational thinking, this is how the same conversation would go. First person says, I don't like that famous person. Okay. Now we're talking about the same exact conversation. You say, oh, well, why not? Now person number one, who's rational says, well, for one, they showed a lack of morality and character when they engaged in XYZ behavior, which is very public knowledge and has been written about. Secondly, it seems like they use people to get ahead and aren't really very nice to people. And lastly, when they speak publicly, their speaking ability is very poor. So you, then you would say, oh yes, I know those points. That's been written about extensively. So you can see that the rational person is giving you fact, 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 that they have then based their their opinion and their conclusion on. It's a huge difference. And there are, unfortunately, many 
forms of irrational thinking or many cognitive distortions. How many? Well, I did a podcast on cognitive distortions some time ago, which you can go listen to. We'll tell you a whole lot more than what I'm going to say in this podcast. And I couldn't I couldn't find a concrete number that we've agreed upon. Well, now in 2023, that should be obvious because we don't even have agreement, people, on the basic definition of good mental health. No, we do not. Worldwide, we do not have consensus on that definition and a review of the literature through July 31st, 2019, a scoping review from this European pharmacological uh piece, which I have in uh, a podcast uh, on on mental health. We have eight contradictory definitions. We have eight definitions for good mental health that contradict themselves, that are not, they're not in alignment. So like if you had someone who was black or white thinking all or nothing, there's no gray. There's no in between. You're, you're either right or you're wrong. You're black, you're white. There's leaps in logic, magical thinking, always being right, blaming. So this line of questioning, why do you say that? Or what makes you think that is, is, can drive up irrational thinking or cognitive distortion where someone will say, well, you know, if you're, if you're Catholic, it's a sin to lie. Well, let me pull out the Catholic scriptures. I don't know the number off the top of my head. I used to know it. And it does say in there, if you're asking something you have no business asking, the person is, is not supposed to tell you. Like, No, it's not a black and white thing in Catholicism that you cannot lie. No, you're not supposed to lie, but you're also not supposed to meddle in someone's business, cross boundaries, get into, ask things that you have no business and you should never ask. So I, I, I think it's very interesting because we have like lots of black and white all or nothing thinkers and they're, they're actually not right. And like, if some people would just go look things up, they'd go, oh yeah, look at what it says. I actually had it written down at one point because I was so annoyed that someone would, you know, perpetuate this stance in Catholicism, which is actually false. You know, you, of course, lying is not a good thing, but when you cross a boundary and you ask something that you have no business asking or knowing, According to the canon law, I forget the number, it's 1822 or something. I, you know, I can't even remember the number. It's got an eight and a two in it. (laughs) Uh, No, people are not supposed to answer you and tell you the truth. Absolutely not. So what happens when you say this to someone who has the cognitive distortion of always being right? Well, you have to remember, people who have a cognitive distortion, they don't recognize that they have it. It's their blind spot. They don't recognize that their thinking is distorted. So they, someone who's always right, again, you can go listen to that podcast, would likely be offended. And no matter what is said, they are always going to be right, even when they're wrong. I mean, like this person I was talking to, you know, was quoting, like not quoting the Bible, because of course they weren't quoting, but they didn't know what the sacred scripture actually said about that. No, the now, we don't encourage lying, but there are instances where you should not be telling someone the truth. Like if you're bound in confidence, if you've entrusted your word that you are not going to repeat something that's told to you and then someone asks you, no, you should not be repeating it. Absolutely not. And it is in the scriptures. And if I have to look it up again, I probably will because I could because I could find that again. So 
people who are always right react very poorly typically to being questioned or being, you know, being evaluated. It's just they don't typically have a good reaction, which might be a clue that they have a cognitive distortion. And rational thinking, unfortunately, is not very common. And I would give a statistic, but I don't have it. And I, of course, now we know we don't have agreement on the definition of good mental health. We don't have agreement on, you know, we, we only think we, we don't have the agreement on the criteria for good mental health either. We simply have criteria about what constitutes mental illness. That seems to be what we have. So contributing to uh, cognitive distortion or irrational thinking that would have someone react poorly low self-esteem is also going to play in here so people who have low self-esteem and that means they uh, feel unworthy and they don't feel deserving they don't feel good enough they see life through a lens that's called i'm not good enough i'm not worthy it's like everything filters through that lens it's very painful and that will change their reactions because instead of like when someone asks me well where did I get that I'll tell them oh that's from a book called Dr. Folkman's War or oh that's from a book called such and such or that's from a film documentary or that or you know well, I'll tell them how I know it and I, or I might say you know I'm not sure I'd have to look that up again I think I saved that uh, paper but I don't know like I will say oh it's from here or it's from there or well Here's when I learned it. I'm not sure. I'd have to go look it up again. But but people who have low self-esteem can be offended. They can like think, oh, see, they don't trust me. Oh, see, they don't think I'm smart. Like they will think something negative that you are not thinking. Like when I say this to people, I'm not thinking they're idiots. I'm not thinking they're stupid. I'm not thinking anything bad about them. I'm just looking to see where is this coming from? Because I want to understand. I want to understand people. I want to be richly related to people. And if you want to be richly related to people, you have to understand where they're coming from. So low self-esteem has a huge impact on how people react. And the other thing that will contribute negatively to how people react to this is if they're a negative thinker. Now, I just did a podcast on negative thinking called Negative Thinking Got You Down. That involves so many different things. Like it's not just negative thinking. It's negative thinking, catastrophizing, brooding, ruminating, overthinking. All of these things will impact how someone responds. It's the way that they think. So there are many different ways someone could respond if they're not going, oh, here, let me tell you, it could be one of those things. So I want to move briefly into the definition of critical thinking, because critical thinking is a pathway, in my opinion, this is my opinion, to more rational thinking. You know what? I have a whole podcast, as I already mentioned, on cognitive distortions that will help you understand and move away from it but this is another avenue which is critical thinking and what critical th thinking is defined is, as is the application of logical principles rigorous standards of evidence and careful reasoning to the analysis and discussion of claims beliefs and issues so here's a little bit more on critical thinking it's the ability to effectively analyze information and form a judgment. You must be aware of your own biases and assumptions when encountering information and when evaluating sources 
and then also apply consistent standards. So in this definition of critical thinking or this explanation, they list four key elements. One is identify credible sources. Note the language in there because I'm going to pick up on that later. Identify credible sources. Two, evaluate and respond to arguments. Three, assess alternative viewpoints. Four, test hypotheses against relative criteria. So that's critical thinking. And I think you can see there's like a mirror here for rational thinking. So we don't have even agreement. I hate, to, I hate to break it to you. No surprise now, but we don't even have agreement in psychology as to what critical thinking means. I know it's so, I'm sad. It's like Houston. Houston, we have a problem. Houston, we have several problems in psychology and mental health, but we also have the same problems in in, in medicine, like not psychology, but medicine. So this to me harkens back to, or reminds me of what I read in M. Scott Peck, MD, God rest his soul, in his book, People of the Lie, he had an analogy to therapy in his book where he indicated like therapy is like looking at your map of life. Like you do life, you have a certain map of life under a microscope to see if it's accurate. Like, does your map hold water? Does it stand up? You know, will it stand up to scrutiny? And and asking for more information, sources, facts, reasons, etc. in a conversation, to me, is no different. Like, does what the person's saying hold up? Well, we have people who blow smoke out of their, you know, ears. We have people who are chronic liars who don't even recognize they're lying. We have people who have such poor or a non-existent self-awareness they're just it's, they might as well be aliens they they can't even see their own behavior and therefore they can't speak the truth because it's like they're in la la land so you know this is a really underscores that it's not wrong or bad to ask somebody well why do you say that why do you think that where'd you get that idea and and use the right resources now you know, for myself, <laughs> yeah, those people who've been following my podcast know I'm like the PubMed person, but I want to provide actual and factual information to help people. So hopefully at this point, before I get into some other aspects, hopefully you can see this could help you. It could help you sort out fact from lies. It could help you make informed decisions and choices. It could reveal issues, problems, smear campaigns, the green-eyed monster, and other issues you were not aware of. And it can reveal projection, gaslighting, triangulation, and much more. So it's, this, is help, this is a very helpful tool. But you have to begin to become awake and aware to notice how people react. Now, if you react poorly when someone says to you where'd you get that information where'd you where'd you learn that where'd you hear that uh what's your evidence or anything like that you if you get irritated or you notice you get your defensive or you're offended just notice because that's you there's something about you that you could operative word could grow and develop so that it doesn't irritate you because it doesn't irritate me in the least uh, and I'm not, by the way, in this whole conversation, I am not suggesting to you that you be argumentative. I am not suggesting 
that you are like uh, cross-examining people. I'm not, I'm not, I never suggest having drama or being argumentative with people because that's never a good idea. And this, so I'm not suggesting that, okay? Um, and the other thing I want to say is that this does not apply to items covered by faith. So there are things that are by faith alone, and this does not cover that. That's there, there. That's a separate class of its own. And I have not done a podcast on faith. I don't even think that's on my list. I have a long list, but I don't think it's on there. All right. So next, I want to move into this whole idea of fact slash evidence gathering. Uh, because if you're going to ask that question, people are going to ask you, it's good to have a little bit of knowledge or distinction about that right out of the gates because we don't want you. So, of course, we don't want you looking foolish. So I'm going to give you some little highlights so that you're not looking foolish. I mentioned I mentioned in a uh, podcast, might have been earlier this week or yesterday, how I had done research on the coronavirus when the pandemic broke. Like somebody like me would just go right in, take a dive into PubMed and see what what the research says. Well, so in preparing for this podcast, I went to back to find the original article that I have, which I actually have on a flash drive. So I, I know I have it. I just don't have the flash drive with me where I am. But I had said in this podcast that the coronavirus was discovered in the United States in 1961 by this Dr. Tyler or something Tyler. And I could not find that. Well, that's why I actually have things on a flash drive. Not not my, with a car accident and me being in rehab and everything shifting. I don't have everything. I don't have all my stuff with me. I'm not, uh, I'm, in, I'm in transition. But what I did find is in the internet, the BMJ, which is an international peer-reviewed medical journal, that the first coronavirus was described in their journal. So it was written in their journal in 1965, but it was from human nasal washings from volunteers, including from 1960. And so, you know, when I read that, not this article, but the the article that I have on my flash drive, what what I instantly knew, which you would know is, if we've been getting samples of coronavirus and it's been discovered in 1960 or 1961, I mean, the article that I have on the flash drive says in the United States it was 1961. This is saying it was published in 1965, but the nasal uh, washings were, you know, going back from 1960. So let's not dice hairs. The early 1960s, we can say for sure. That means we've all had a coronavirus at some point. Like, like that's what that means. But looking at the science, people would be surprised because who goes and looks at the science? I mean, like the science is particularly, you know, important and amazing. And for me, it saved me from having a hysterectomy. It saved the life of someone I love. I mean, looking at the science. But here's the problem with the science. You have to be able to sort it out and you have to be able to know what's credible. Now, if you're fact checking something else, like I, like one of the things I did was I was I fact checked what was being reported on the news. So they said that this one particular drug was unsafe. 
But somebody else said, oh, it's on the WHO list of essential medicines. So I thought, hmm, well, if it's on the WHO list of safe and essential medicines, that means it's been over the hill, over the top, proven safe, like nobody dies from it. It's like got no reactions or, or almost no one ever reacts to it. So I went and looked up the WHO list of essential and safe, you know, medicines, and it was on there. You don't get on that list by chance. You know, no dangerous medicines make it to that list. I hate, I hate to tell you, but you know, you can, you can use your skills to fact check then. So I did some fact checking. I wasn't happy about that. So here's the thing. So it's not enough to find one source, in my opinion, if you're, if you're looking to get some research or some evidence, you have to look at that, whether there's a body of evidence or a weight of evidence, is there a weight of evidence? So the weight or the body is like the number of entries in PubMed on a particular key term or key search term or keywords. So I'm going to give you an example because my point in this is for you to gain some traction and of course for you not to look foolish because nobody likes looking foolish and we have people who throw themselves under the bus willingly they just like literally flung fling themselves under the bus and they don't even know it they don't even realize it that's not for you that's not for my people so I'm going to use the example of the term imposter syndrome if you look on the internet under the term imposter syndrome you'll get plenty of hits you will and it will look to you like, oh, this is a real thing. Oh, this, this is like, this is important. This is real. And that's one point of view. If you go to PubMed or PubMed Central, so PubMed, P-U-B-M-E-D, is the U.S. government's warehouse or repository of research that they feel is valid and support supported. It does not consider all research, which I, I have my thoughts about that, but it is what it is. It's at least a, a place that's been authenticated by the U.S. government. They're saying it's it's real and it's valid. So if you Google on, or if you use PubMed and search under PubMed imposter syndrome, you'll come up with almost no hits. Like it's like a non, it's like a non-event, non-thing. And But if you go deeper as I did because I I actually met somebody in a zoom call who was looking for training on imposter syndrome and I thought hmm I don't think that's a real thing but I'll go look it up and and the further I went okay here's why it's not a real thing when you do research you have to have criteria and we have stringent research criteria that allows research to be replicated if a topic or a subject or whatever idea, notion, concept does isn't flushed out to have criteria that meets the standard science criteria, then no one can replicate your research. In other words, it's too subjective. Like tests and tests and concepts in science have to be isometrically validated and meet the gold standards for research. And the idea of the imposter syndrome fell short, which is why the research stopped. It was like too subjective to be researched. And if you look at what some people have written about it, well, imposter syndrome is nothing more than a ramped up case of somebody who has low self-esteem. So in science, they have criteria that literally has to be met in order for people to to do research, which is why, you know, when someone comes up with, you know, uh, uh, 
a, a topic like I just did a podcast about authenticity and there's an authenticity inventory and I'm not sure if that, where that stands about being validated and whether it's valid or not, but they have criteria, but the criteria, you have to be able to measure it. It has to be measurable in some form. So there has to be a scale and imposter syndrome fell flat on its face. No, no, no. So are people still offering trainings on imposter syndrome? Oh yes, they are. And do I think they look foolish and uneducated. Oh my heavens. Yes, I do. Because I could not believe the limit, limited number of entries in PubMed until I found the one art research piece in PubMed that explained why. Like it couldn't, they couldn't carry on with the research because it was completely subjective. There's no like criteria, like no, no. So when you look at research, you know, there's a lot of different pieces. Knowing that something comes from PubMed gives me a little bit more confidence. I'm not like, I'm not like the PubMed, oh my God, it's the end all be all. No, I am not, I'm not saying that about PubMed, but it's a tool. Now, the other thing you can do when you're looking at a research piece, now this is for PubMed, is to go to the end of the, of the research and look at how many citations they are, which can be an indicator. So for a rich topic that's been well-researched, there will be like, you know, 50, 100, 200, there could be 300 citations. Now, if you're talking about a layperson article, magazine article, newspaper article, or website, article they're typically not cited there's typically one or no citations or very few citations or references for that and um but it's helpful to kind of look i have this medical textbook that is titled uh the reversibility of chronic and degenerative diseases by dr ray and dr patel uh, I think it's Dr. William Ray in Texas and Dr. Kalpana, Kalpana Patel in Buffalo. And this is like an amazing, it is a science textbook. It's a medical textbook. And when you, when I looked at the chapters, oh my gosh, there were some chapters where there were more than 500 citations in the chapter, more than 500. Uh, I didn't look at every chapter. I, I took one look and I, this is like way over my pay grade, but what a great idea. Like you get the sciences, hmm, we can reverse degenerative diseases. Mm, we can reverse chronic diseases. Oh, let's look at that. So I, I hunkered down and <laughs> spent a lot of money on a medical textbook that's over my head, but I have it if I need it. So for your, if you're doing research, one thing I, I would recommend, I really would, is put your research on a flash drive. And the reason I say that is because it could be very helpful in the future. Now, during the pandemic, and I'm doing all this research. And one of the things I read online was that that they, quote unquote, they were deleting, um, they, the powers that be, were deleting information and research and, and anything related to natural medicine, supplements, and, you know, vitamin C and stuff like that. So I thought, well, that can't be true. Of course, that cannot be true. But how would I know that? So then I thought, oh, I have two posts on my Facebook saved posts, saved archives on vitamin C. I'll go look and see if they're there as a fluke. Of course, I expected them to be there. Of course, I expected them to be there. 
and they were gone. Now, they, they were covered over with this gray, saying this information is not available anymore. You could kind of see what it, what it was. And one of them was about um, Dr. Richard Klenner, who was really the pioneer doctor, medical doctor, published, I don't know, eons and eons of articles on IV vitamin C and all the health conditions it could cure. So one one article was about this Dr. Klenner and IV vitamin C. So I went to find it online, couldn't find it. And I thought, oh, it's gone, it's gone. So I just did a little more research and I found that Dr. Klenner's peers or friends, I'm not sure, two people he knew what in whatever relationship or whatever capacity, took his 20, 30 or however many articles, published peer review medical journal articles, put the summation of the treatment into a 50 page document that I found online. I was like, oh my gosh, I've hit the holy grail. This is the mother load. Uh, thank you, Jesus. And I put that on my flash drive, which was way better than what Facebook had covered up and deleted. So then I thought, oh, this is really, this is really, I think it's a real thing. So I, I then I went to look and see the other article I had posted on my Facebook page was this Smithsonian Magazine article about IV vitamin C being used as a cure for sepsis in conjunction with other things. And that was gone, but I was able to find that. And I actually found that earlier this year and printed it out again. I mean, I have it on my flash drive. I just wasn't sure where my flash drive was. Um, anyway, so it is helpful for you to put things of, of importance on a flash drive or save them. I do have three moving boxes. Like they're not huge. There's like this box moving box size of medical research materials. There are research papers, there are books, there are out of print medical books, in print medical books, a book, in print medical book. There are DVDs, film documentaries, all kinds of stuff because it would be extremely hard to find again. So do your research. Don't be offended if somebody questions you. And I hope you can see that this is just like totally reasonable. And it could really unearth something that would be very, very valuable in your personal relationships with other people if they're thinking the wrong thing, which you might only find out by saying, why do you think that? Or why did you say that? Or, you know, blah, blah, blah. All right. So I'm going to give you some final thoughts to wrap it up. So Number one, if you're offended by someone asking for your source or why you think that or your evidence, check yourself. It's just a fair and reasonable question, people. Knock that off that it's something's wrong with that. That's that's BS. Number two, you can grow and develop your thinking. Like you really can. And I would suggest your tools you can purchase. Uh, and there may be some free tools, I don't know, on critical thinking. So look up critical thinking and that would not hurt you. For sure it won't hurt you. Number three, my suggestion is don't let people shame you for asking for more information. So if you ask for more information and someone starts the shame game or blame you or make some, you know, derogatory comment, you know, I would not let that silence you. you. You can just move away from them and figure they're not worth your time or you can do whatever you do. But there are people who will directly or indirectly try to shame you into silence or try to silence you through various means. Shame is only one of the tools. 
Uh, I just, I just don't recommend it. Uh, and, and you may need to do assertiveness training or you may need to boost your self-esteem to feel good enough to be able to stand your ground. I don't know what you'll need. I mean, I do not recommend getting into an argument. I mean, you can argue. I, I'm just like, I don't, I like peace, people. I like peace, P-E-A-C-E. I really like peace. I don't like drama. I don't like, you know. So, but I'm just telling you, you do not ever need to be ashamed for asking for understanding, which is really what you're asking for. You're asking for understanding. And the next suggestion, number four, is do your own research, people. Like, fact-finding doesn't have to be hard, and it can be fun, and it can be life-changing. I mean, literally, like I have the article from the Smithsonian Vet Magazine on IV vitamin C for sepsis, which is what it was for. So this doctor in Texas featured in the Smithsonian Magazine article, whose name escapes me, you know, came up with this treatment for sepsis using IV vitamin C and some other, some other things. And it was so effective, people were leaving the hospital in two and three days. Like they were just like walking out of the hospital like nothing happened. And it's growing, but medicine is very in it's very resistant to change in technology. And I do have a I do have a research piece by that title from the 80s. So like I know if I know somebody who had sepsis, I can pull that out. I can say this is what has to be done. Here's the doctor you can connect with. Like this is like that could be life saving. And by the way, the IV vitamin C and sepsis is now in PubMed. It, originally, when the first doctor in Texas started, it wasn't in PubMed, but now people are researching it and finding out yes, it does work. So do your research. It could be life changing. And just even, and I say, do your research. That's if you need, if you need to do evidence finding, fact finding, but you know, just even understanding people. Uh, my next suggestion is go ahead and get ahead of any cognitive distortions because they're not going to help you. They're, they're hurting you for sure. They're shooting yourself. They're shooting you in the foot, whether you know it or not. And my next to last point, number six is I really want you to understand and remember just because someone has a degree or just because someone wrote a book or someone has a website or they're a public speaker or they offer workshops or trainings on a particular subject does not mean that they are credible or that they have good information. I wish it meant that it should mean that, but it, it in no way means that. And I, and I'm very disturbed by some of what I'm finding out in the world because it's hurtful and harmful to people who are either prone to addictions in addictions, people who are suicidal. Some of the stuff that's being, you know, said out there is completely disingenuous. It's not true. And some of it's being said by people who have a degree and you would hope would know better, but they don't. So just remember just because someone has a website or a book or a degree, it does not mean, like, look at these people who are talking about imposter syndrome. They think they're all that. And the people who don't know that they haven't looked it up or think, oh, yeah, no, no, that's, that is not, no. So remember that. And my last thing is that this could be a very significant game changer for you in your personal relationships. If you stand from the position that you want to understand the other person first, that means you're going to put aside your emotions, put aside your positions and understand where are they coming from. 
That is not something you might be able to do right now, but you could grow and develop to the point where you could do that. But it is a place of love and compassion, love and affection and compassion to really care about the people in your life where you care what they think and why do they think that? Because I promise you this line of questioning, this line of talking like, what makes you think that? Why are you thinking that? What gave you that idea? Where did you get that? You know, you could unearth some painful things that your loved one uh, could be thinking or could have been thinking or may have been thinking, which are not true. And so, of course, you don't want people you love walking around thinking things that aren't true. So if you can come from trying to understand the other person first, that will go a long way. I hope this has been helpful. I hope you're going to remember that it shouldn't be offensive when someone says, where did you get that idea? All right, that's it. Take care. I'm Lisa Lundy saying thank you for listening to my Love Life podcast. Episode number 155, What is Your Evidence? I certainly hope you got a very clear vision about rational thinking, critical thinking, and doing your due diligence. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe so you get the new ones automatically, because of course, you would not want to miss one. And share this podcast on social media to help us create a wave of rational thinking, critical thinking, and logic, real logic. I hope you're doing well. I love you. Hang in there for now. That's it.